This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 8, Episode 5. How will Putin test Biden? A conversation with Professor Andrei Siegenkopf, Professor of International Relations and Political Science at San Francisco State University. There's a history of Russian leaders sizing up new American presidents. Khrushchev and Kennedy at Vienna in 1961, Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik in 1985, George Bush looking into Putin's soul, Obama's attempt to reset the relationship, and Trump's odd meeting with Putin in Helsinki in 2018. Putin and Biden may meet up later this year. In each case, it gives both leaders an opportunity to take the measure of the man, for better or worse. But Biden's recent ascent to a journalist charge that Putin is a killer is not a good omen. While Trump's passive fawning over Putin went to the opposite extreme. So what can we we expect in the Russian-U.S. relationship during a Biden presidency. Joining us today from the campus of San Francisco State University to explain the current state of play between Russia and the United States is Professor Andrei Siegenkopf, a graduate of Moscow State University and a Ph.D. from the University of Southern California. He's Professor of International Relations and Political Science at San Francisco State. Good afternoon, Andre. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Andre, can you share with our listeners a little bit of your biography? Well, uh, to put it shortly, I graduated, as you, as you already mentioned, from uh, Moscow State University. And then I studied for PhD uh, in the United States at USC, I actually worked a couple of years at George Washington University before going to USC. I graduated in the year 2000. And so for the last 20 plus years, I have been teaching at San Francisco State University, mostly foreign policy, IR theory, and Russian politics at both political science department and department of international relations, issues that have to do with Russian foreign policy. Very impressive. Now, let's launch into our discussion. In late April, Vladimir Putin, in his State of the Nation speech to the Russian parliament, warned the West not to cross a red line with Russia, saying that such a move would trigger, and I quote, an asymmetrical, rapid, and harsh response, unquote. What prompted Putin to give such a warning and what should the Biden administration make of it? Well, that's a large question that has two parts, so let me briefly address both. First, uh, uh, about the actual red lines and the sources of Putin's reception here. The full quote is that we don't want to burn any bridges. We want to maintain good relations with everyone who participates in the international dialogue. But 
if someone mistakes our good intentions for indifference or weakness and intends to burn or even blow up these bridges, then they must know that Russia's response will be asymmetrical, swift, and tough. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia, of course, uh, has been extremely sensitive, sensitive with respect to potential interference by outsiders, and not just Russia, as we know, most states, and particularly great powers, and if you remember how the United States reacted to Russia's influence in elections in 2016, are extremely sensitive to this issue. Uh, the context for these perceptions are different in the United States and in Russia. The United States sees itself as a global uh, power that uh, spreads democracy across the world, and uh, it expects others to follow its policies and actions, whereas for Russia, at least historically, uh, and now in many, in many respects as well, uh, the idea is that we must stay as a great power against foreign, mostly Western pressures. Historically, Russia has had difficulties of preserving territorial integrity. It has a very uh, large and contested geography. It has been engaged in uh, multiple great power rivalries and wars, particularly with European states, but with other states as well. And it's important to mention that it has been historically a relatively underdeveloped state, economically backward state. So it's not in the center of the international system, unlike the United States, unlike Western states, but it is catching up and it continues to see itself as a catching-up state. And that, too, is a source of insecurity. And contemporary context is somewhat different. Russia emerged. It looks like a powerful state. But mm -hmm. really, it has gone through a very difficult legacy of the 90s. And it functions more like a weak state than as a strong state because it... Um, uh, the Kremlin in particular, in particular, more specifically Putin, has a low capacity to generate widespread changes in the society. He acts more like a broker between different competing political clans, political economic clans. And that makes it difficult to address all the issues that he wanted to address in his recent State of the Union or address to the Russian Federation Council. He talked about the economy, he talked about COVID, he talked about health crisis, he talked about uh, international changes as well. So the context of this quote that you have and I added to is really primarily defensive. We need to address all these issues and we will also need to protect our core interests. And if we see these interests, core interests being violated, then we will respond. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's the question of red lines. And there are, I would say, at least two red lines that we need to keep in mind. Yes. One is, again, sovereignty and non-interference, broadly defined uh, in Russian domestic politics and elections. And it's not just Russia who influenced U.S. elections. For years, the United States has been doing the same with respect to Russia by offering Training and finances for opposition, 
by making all kinds of normative judgments and statements, uh, and even by going to Russia and telling Putin not to run for president, as Joe Biden did in 2011, all of this is viewed as interference by Russians, and they are quite sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. And on top of this, you also have economic sanctions, and that is an effort to isolate Russia from the global economy. You have very formidable intelligence capabilities, cyber capabilities. So there is a, a, a there is a strong fear of regime change in the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Putin is convinced that the United States is after regime change in Russia. Mm-hmm. That's one red line. This is where Russians will uh, protect their interests at, at a very high cost. Mm-hmm. And the other one has to do with however you wish to call it, with a sphere of influence, in particular around Russia, in the former Soviet region, in Eurasia, where Russia believes it must be protected from potential encroachment by outsiders. And it has to do with, first and foremost, military security. Russia wants uh, neighboring states either to be friendly or at least to be neutral. Mm-hmm. And neutral means not join any military alliances in which Russia is not a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also wants economic and energy interests to be protected. And it wants to protect Russian citizens who live outside Russia or those who gravitate towards Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gives you an idea why this conflict with Ukraine has been so intense. Because mm-hmm. here you have all these interests combined, military, security, energy, because Russia has a major energy pipeline through Ukraine to Europe. Yes. And it has plenty plenty of Russian speakers living in Ukraine. You know, so that's one part of one part of your question. Please, please interrupt me at any point. Okay. Let me just jump in there. Um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Kiev yesterday, and it was was an interesting visit. He uh, he went to a memorial for Ukrainian soldiers who were killed in the conflict with Russia. He laid some flowers there at uh, at that memorial. Uh, he went on to have conversations with the Ukrainian government leaders. Now, over the since March, we've seen Russia increasing its troop presence on the border with eastern Ukraine, uh, the area called Donetsk. Um, let's talk about that a little bit because you've given us a very good explanation as regards Russia's sensitivities about Ukraine about Belarus, but in this particular case about Ukraine, of course, mm-hmm. uh, 2014, Russia annexed Crimea, which for the longest time had been part of Russia till 1954. So let's talk a little bit about Ukraine and Russian sensitivity there. And of course, Ukraine is also a very complicated issue for the Biden family. So what do you think about that? I agree. It's a, it's a complicated issue in part because Biden has been invested in uh, resolving this conflict ever since it began, began in 2014. And he was, as you remember, designated uh, uh, supervisor of how Ukraine was doing. He visited Ukraine on multiple occasions. He uh, observed and uh, 
participated to the extent possible in how Ukraine was changing from political and economic standpoints. Of course, he has stakes there, and it's not a surprise that Anthony Blinken uh, was also there, uh, and not only he, but also uh, Victoria Nuland, who was previously also engaged in Ukrainian politics. Uh, and that will continue to be the case, because for the United States, Ukraine is is an essential state to uh, potentially contain Russia, to deter Russia's uh, possible uh, political and uh, economic ambitions in Europe. This is another reason why the United States opposes Russia's uh, northern uh, pipeline, the second line is Germany, yes. because it potentially increases Russia's uh, leverage in Europe. And in that case, of course, Russia will be able to circumvent, circumvent Ukraine, because right now uh, most Russian energy supplies to Europe go through the pipeline that connects Russia and Europe through Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So all of this will continue to play a role in American calculations. The United States, Ukraine, is an essential state to deter Russia. And for Russia, it's far more than that. For Russia, uh, as I mentioned, it has to do with uh, security, with the sense of military security. If Ukraine is a NATO, mm-hmm. then make no mistake, Russians will do what, what whatever they can to prevent this from happening. Ukraine is already uh, partially disintegrated, and they will simply not be able to assemble the state back if that happens. Uh, then, of course, it has to do with economic interests. It's not just about energy. The two countries have been intertwined economically for decades, if mm-hmm. not centuries. And last but not least, I've already mentioned that uh, Ukraine is home many, many people who are very closely culturally connected to Russia. Uh, it's the same orthodox religion. It's a very close language. It's a very closely intertwined culture. They fought together against similar enemies. Mm-hmm. Ukraine, of course, is very divided, but the, uh, the majority of Ukrainians feel strongly connected to Russia and vice versa. So mm-hmm. that puts Russia in a very particular situation where Putin has obligations to react if Ukraine is perceived by many Russians as being taken away from Russia uh, by, uh, for instance, policies of giving to Ukrainians membership action plan for NATO. That's not at this point in plans. Mm-hmm. And Anthony Blinken's trip demonstrated that the uh, United States is not eager to to do what may exacerbate tensions here. The trip itself was uh, primarily uh, to demonstrate symbolical support for Ukrainian sovereignty and to offer possible assistance and also to, um, to review the state of Ukrainian political and economic changes because there is a strong perception in the United States that Ukraine continues to be very corrupt, and there is not much that has been done on this point, on this on this front. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you a little bit more, if you'd like, on Russia's uh, goals there, on Russia's perceptions of the conflict, on the recent military buildup. Uh, the uh, upshot of this is that the two countries, and I mean now not just Ukraine, 
but Russia and the United States are essentially on a collision course. They have not settled their differences, and Ukraine continues to be a locus of all the essential and most sensitive issues and red lines for Russia. If you add to this, the, the international system is in process of transition to a new structure, more multipolar structure. It's a power transition with China rising and Russia, uh, most issues siding with China. Mm-hmm. And the United States, in relative terms, is not being as influential as previously. Then it creates all kinds of opportunities for instability, on all kinds of opportunities for potential destabilization in the region. And let's not forget that in many respects, whether or not the United States wants it, whether or not NATO wants it, Russia holds the cards in Ukraine. It continues to have powerful resources that mm-hmm. the United States cannot match. In this particular neighborhood, Russia is able to achieve what it wants. It simply does not want, not yet, to play most hard balls. Mm-hmm. Now, coming back to uh, Donetsk and the eastern part of Ukraine, are there peace talks underway to uh, reduce the tensions in eastern Ukraine? There are. There are. They have been uh, off and on for all these years, but they have not been very effective, uh, mostly because the uh, uh, perceived balance of power in the Kremlin is not the right one. And so Russia has uh, the leverage here. It is able to influence the Donbass area. It's not just Donetsk, but it's also Luhansk. There are two separatist regions uh, that, are, that are combined under the umbrella of Donbass. And they, of course, are closely coordinating their actions with Russia. They want to be in Russia. They want Russia uh, ultimately to, uh, the sooner the better, to recognize their independence first, and then uh, to include, as it did with, uh, uh, with Crimea, that's the end goal. And for Russia, this is, this is not the end game. The, the end game is to be able to influence Ukrainian politics, and uh, it is able to uh, use the situation to influence dialogue. But it wants Kiev to follow what has been decided a while ago in Minsk, the so-called Minsk Agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that complicated of an agreement, but it's more, uh, it, it, it's an agreement that favors Russia more than Ukraine. And that's the reason why Kiev wants to get out of that agreement, and it has been uncomfortable. It simply uh, stipulates, uh, in a nutshell, that Kiev must directly negotiate with Donetsk and Luhansk, and after the settlement is reached, after Donetsk and Luhansk will obtain relative autonomy, they will address jointly, Ukraine and Russia, the border security. So the border will be closed only after the uh, negotiations are completed. There is a visible, sizable autonomy for the eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, and Kiev authorities for all these years sabotaged this formula and wanted to reverse it. They want to close the border first. They want completely seal off uh, Donbass from Russian influence. 
And then they want essentially to stabilize the situation as they see fit. They do not want to hold any negotiations with Donetsk and Luhansk. They view the Luhansk and Donetsk leaders as not only separatists but terrorists. And they essentially want ultimately to use force to solve this issue. And that's where the issue has been stalled. There are multiple formats. There is a Normand format with major powers participating, Russia, France, uh, uh, Germany, uh, and Ukraine. Uh, there is uh, there is a contact group uh, in which uh, Russia and Ukrainian authorities are negotiating separately. Uh, there is a format in which, at least previously, uh, separatist powers in Donetsk and Lugansk were able to participate, but they were not effective because Kiev does not want to negotiate this issue. So for now, uh, there were multiple attempts on both sides, and the best they could uh, accomplish, they exchanged prisoners ever since Vladimir Zelensky, who is current president of Ukraine, was elected mm-hmm. two years ago. He was able to negotiate good uh, prisoners exchange conditions, and Russia and Ukraine made progress in this respect. Mm-hmm. But beyond this, they could not agree. Beyond this, again, Russia will not initiate any major changes uh, simply because it does not feel that the balance is right. And uh, it also feels that uh, time is on Russia's side, not on the Ukrainian side, mm-hmm. because Zelensky is being increasingly unpopular. And if elections were to take place today, then Zelensky would already be in a tie with a pro-Russian candidate, Medvedchuk, who is increasingly popular. So um, the Kremlin simply prefers to wait until Ukrainians will come to their senses, so to speak, mm-hmm. or until there is a better there is a better condition. It's not about taking Ukraine by force. It's not about using force, but it's about demonstrating that Russia has enough power if force comes to force to use. And the recent Russian military buildup has been precisely about that kind of demonstration, and it worked. It has been effective. Because not only Ukrainians backed off, but Joe Biden backed off as well. Yeah, let's come. Let's move on to Belarus. Now, um, there on April seventeenth, the Belarusian police said that they had foiled a plot to assassinate Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, and uh, apparently that there were claims of a coup. And, of course, these claims of a coup were dismissed by the Belarusian uh, opposition. But nonetheless, uh, Belarusian police believe that there was an attempted coup, that there was a plot to assassinate the president. And, of course, President Lukashenko is a close ally of Vladimir Putin. Where does Mm -hmm. Belarus figure in all of this mix? It's a very hard question to answer for me, Jim. It's a good one. I'm glad that you asked it, but it's hard to answer for one simple reason. The only source of information so far is the government. It's, it's the government of Russia, it's the government of Belarus. We do not have any independent sources, and I happen to be quite mistrustful of merely government-based sources, whether it's in Russia or in the United States or even intelligence-based sources, we always need additional information to corroborate, to be able to untangle the story. 
So it's hard to tell to tell uh, what is going on for me. I could only speculate briefly with you. Uh, in addition to a, that we don't have enough information. B would be that certainly the story helps Lukashenko. It helps uh, Belarus leader mm-hmm. who has gone through very difficult period of time ever since his elections went bad, ever since uh, it was widely recognized as a uh, fraudulent election, ever since protests uh, emerged uh, as powerful enough to challenge him in Belarus. Uh, he needs uh, uh, he needs a way, additional way to unify the population. And traditionally, as you know, in international politics, creating or inventing a foreign enemy uh, can be a useful tool for population unification, for yes. providing, providing the measure of political stability. So that's not entirely excluded that this is a provocation uh, on part of some security services. Uh, also, because we are again in a very murky international period, a period of power transition where intelligence services are playing increasingly active role and where politicians are using intelligence services for the objectives. We mm-hmm. have seen this in Ukraine, we have seen this in Belarus even before uh, Lukashenko was elected. Uh, you might recall there was a story when, you, when uh, he arrested. Uh, several Russian military officers and charged them with also plot against Lukashenko. Uh, and that story then eventually unraveled. Uh, he was very apologetic. But in this case, intelligence played its role. And actually, it turns out that it was Ukrainian intelligence services operation. And the United States intelligence is also playing a very important role, as we saw with Trump's story. Yes. So it's possible that this is what's happening here. We have seen previous intelligence operations before. Uh, and that's all I can say at this point. We really mm-hmm. have to wait to see if this story is anything beyond simply being cooked up by Lukashenko. I see. Let's, uh, of course, foreign policy is probably Vladimir Putin's strong suit. Uh, in a recent opinion poll in Russia, uh, apparently Russian citizens, Russian people, were, uh, by a high proportion, were in favor of Putin's handling of foreign policy. But on domestic issues, apparently he's, Putin is not as popular. So let's move on to his domestic critic, Alexei Navalny. And uh, what is the status with Alexei Navalny? I, I believe his hunger strike has, uh, has stopped. Uh, where, do we, where do we stand with, uh, with his case? Well, it's, it's, it's like you said, this hunger, hunger uh, strike has stopped, but he's in prison. Uh, his official uh, prison term is for uh, two plus years. So he will be there uh, at least until that period expires. And in the meantime, there is a possibility that he will be given a new sentence, particularly if his release uh, somehow interferes with uh, Russian politics, with the official plans, and by uh, 2024, uh, there will be another opportunity for Putin to decide whether he will stay in power until 2036, or he will resign. He may even resign earlier, 
We don't know. He always closed his cards very close to his vest. Yes. It's possible that he will he will uh, come up with a potential successor uh, as Boris Yeltsin did before he resigned. But it really uh, uh, is not something that we can definitively say at this point. Uh, we know that uh, Navalny is perceived as a major threat mm-hmm. by the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. He has been perceived as such for a while. We also know that uh, uh, Navalny was uh, out of possible participation in politics for quite some time because he was charged with uh, uh, with crime, and uh, he was also on the house arrest until his poisoning took place, and then he returned from Germany on the expectation that he will not be uh, arrested, that he will not be touched by the authorities because he has the Western support behind him, because he is uh, potentially uh, powerful, and he will be able ultimately to change politics in his favor. And he was immediately arrested. And, uh, and at this point, uh, his movement is largely uh, um, uh, uh, unable to function as previously. And on top of this, uh, several days ago, I think last week, actually, his movement has been made illegal. Uh, it has been banned as mm-hmm. uh, yeah, for its extremist activities. So at this point, if opposition in Russia, the non-systemic opposition, opposition outside the political class, if it is to mobilize somehow, it will most likely have to find a different movement, a different leader, and it will have to adopt a very different strategy. Mm-hmm. Now, coming back on a on a positive note, of course, back in January, in a phone call between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, both of them agreed to extend a new START START arms control treaty, uh, and this, of course, was a Russian foreign policy goal, which the Kremlin was not able to achieve while Donald Trump was in office. But apparently Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin have agreed to that. So that's a, that's on a positive note. So there is some some positive news there. I guess one of the other one of the other situations or for the Biden administration is its China policy. And it would seem to me that the Biden administration doesn't want doesn't need to have two major, crises going on at the same time. So my guess is, since there's so much at, uh, at play in the China relationship, that the Biden administration, it would behoove the Biden administration to calm down the situation with Russia and to develop a, a working relationship with Putin. If I were advising the president, that's what I would suggest. Well, um, you may be right, Jim, but then it's hard to explain why Joe Biden begins he begins his term with insulting Putin, yes. calling him a killer, and then imposing all kinds of additional sanctions that were not previously imposed, really, in some respects, unprecedented sanctions against Russian sovereign debt. So I think Biden is not quite consistent, to say the least, in his strategy. He doesn't quite know... Uh, what to do with, uh, with Russia, how to move forward. Russia sometimes is assessed by his entourage as number one threat. Other times, Russia is a threat 
is assessed as a, a relatively long, uh, short-term threat, whereas China is a long-term threat. But either way, there is no nuanced policies that is called for on part of Joe Biden. We can speculate why this is the case. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, uh, you're right that there are some issues that are encouraging on which the two countries can potentially cooperate. Arms control is one. And there is, of course, lots of work ahead of both countries now to negotiate a new uh, strategic arms control treaty uh, because in five years this treaty will expire. Mm. Uh, then there is a question of climate change. Mm-hmm. And there are other possibilities for them to cooperate. But the bottom line is they fundamentally disagree. On the personal level, they don't like each other. They have very different political systems. And Biden happens to think that Russia is uh, simply a corrupt autocracy with no political system. It's just a matter of time before it collapses. And that creates a problem because he doesn't believe that Russia is worthy uh, close attention because it's just not going to function. Uh, in a while, he believes it's a collapsing state. And on the level of the international system, uh, the conditions are also not right for cooperation because of the power transition that I mentioned. So the best we can hope when they meet, and they're most likely to meet next month in Europe, mm-hmm. the best we can hope that there will be some progress in uh, nuclear arms control area and possibly climate change targets as well will be established. And uh, uh, there is also probably overly over-expected hope on my part that they might agree on some cyber uh, red lines in oh. the cyber area. Yes. But the overall thrust of their conversation should be on how to avoid collision, yes. how to avoid major confrontation, how to establish red lines that are relatively clear relatively transparent, and leave it at that for the time being. Well, Andre, in the remaining few moments left to us of our podcast, um, and you've given, us a, you've given us a very broad uh, and all-encompassing overview of our relationship with Russia and the, the, key, the key sensitive points, Ukraine, Navalny, Belarus, the gas pipeline with Europe, the strategic arms talks. I didn't realize that we ha- we only had five years to go before those strategic treaties uh, expired. So quite a bit of work to do there to say nothing of climate. So it sounds as though there's a lot of work to be done. Give us your, give us your closing thoughts as we come to the end of our podcast. Well, the closing, the closing uh, uh, thought would be, would be, Jim, that both, both countries will need to agree on what are the rules of the game right now, on at least on the negative side of it would be what uh, should be roles of, of not interfering um, internally and on some actions that will be banned uh, and agreed upon by both sides in the international area, in cyber area, in the outer space, in nuclear area. And on that basis, and hopefully with some new dialogue based on addressing nuclear issues and new potentially deadly weapons uh, that are being developed as we speak, mm-hmm. they might move forward with some conversation, future conversation, 
but the, the list, of course, of other global issues that I must address is a very long one. And unfortunately, at this point, it's not possible to address all of them, but it is possible to make at least one step forward. Mm-hmm. Well, Andre, I would like to thank you very much for a very thorough explanation of the state of play between U.S. and Russian relations now as Joe Biden begins his term in office. And of course, in a sense, Vladimir Putin has the advantage because he's dealt with uh, with four or five different U.S. presidents. So he has a bit of an advantage there. But I want to thank you very much for a very clear overview, for your insights, your wisdom on this important relationship between Russia and the United States. Thank you very much for having me, Jim, on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. And for our listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, all future episodes will go directly to your inbox. You can listen to the 150 past episodes. You can peruse my blog. You can read my book. Send me a message or an email. This has been the San Francisco Experience, your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.